Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. As we continue in our, our sermons, sermon series in Exodus, we're going to be reading from chapter 13 and 14. I'm actually going to read through chapter 14, verse 4, and uh, Pastor Andrew will be referring to the rest of the text throughout the sermon. Please read with me. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Harath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The very word of our Lord. Please pray with me. Well, Father God, you know all too well that we are wandering people in need of truth and guidance. I pray now, Lord, that you would visit with us in a special way, that you would lead us by the preaching of your word, Lord. I pray that you would, your spirit would direct Pastor Andrew's heart and his mind and his speech as he explains your truth to us. And likewise, Lord, I pray that your spirit would incline our ears and hearts and minds to truly receive the truth and the grace of your word. Lead us in this way and reveal yourself to us, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's great to open up this passage of God's word with you. It's a very familiar passage. Uh, it makes it into all the Bible storybooks. Uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, it's hard to overestimate the importance of this passage for the, the story of God's redeeming work of, of God's people. Uh, over and over again, whether it's in the Old Testament, places like Psalm 76, 77, 105, 106, uh, it's referred to, Isaiah, prophet refers to, I mean, over and over and over again, either explicitly or implicitly. It's the same when we come to the New Testament. We're going to look a little later at 1 Corinthians 10, uh, where there is a reference made to the crossing of, of the Red Sea. 
people's wandering in the desert, the leadership of Moses. Uh, we're told in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 that uh, Jesus is the greater Moses and, and the whole uh, exodus is referred to. Matthew chapter, or I'm sorry, John chapter 5, there's that illusion as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we cross over from death to life. Uh, we see similar things in, in Romans chapter 6, uh, where we're baptized into the Lord Jesus, and then we walk in newness of life. Those aren't just words. They, they have a foundation in a, a consciousness that's in this story. And this story continues to develop the themes of the Exodus, so much so in Luke chapter 9, uh, when Jesus is being transfigured, and uh, Moses and Elijah, you remember, they come down and they speak with Jesus. It says, I believe it's in verse 30 of Luke chapter 9, that they spoke with him about his departure. The word in Greek is Exodus. Uh, the, the mission of Jesus was to lead out, exodus, a way out. That's literally what that word means, uh, to lead out his people from slavery into newness of life, to cross over from death to life. So, when we come to this, this isn't just a story about how God opens our Red Seas. Uh, this isn't just a story about uh, following God in the wilderness. This is a bigger story. This is a story about God's faithfulness to deliver His people from their ultimate enemies, uh, from themselves, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship, all of those things. We're going to comment on that this morning. But we can never lose the bigger picture of what the Exodus is pointing to. The Exodus points to the final work of Jesus on the cross, and so we're going to be moving in that direction as we go this morning. So I want to observe a couple of things with you as we walk through these passages. I'm going to largely be taking 13, 17, all the way through 15, 19, something like that. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on 15, which is the song of Moses and Miriam as they recount uh, the Lord's triumph of the Exodus. I'm going to leave that to you to continue to trace out, uh, make some reference to it. Uh, but we're going to be looking at 1317 to 14 this morning and observing a couple of things. One, uh, the Lord takes his people on a detour. Two, uh, the, uh, the Lord deposes his and our enemies. And then third, uh, the Lord is our deliverer. So those, those are the three stops along the way that we're going to make this morning. Let's start with the detour. You see it pretty clearly, don't you? Uh, Thirteen seventeen, right where Jim picked up the reading. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now we start here because this is often what we experience when we seek to follow the Lord. We've established from the beginning that God is faithful to deliver His people. 
<clears throat> and that's what this story is about. It's about God's delivering his people. And I would say, just as the Lord cared for the Israelites, the Lord cares for his people today. And he is about delivering you from slavery into freedom. But he doesn't always take the most direct route. Uh, the, the leading, the, the journey that we're on is so often different than the way that we would have expected and oftentimes different than the way that we would have chosen. Uh, I mean, there was a way from Egypt to the promised land that was direct. There was a way that was near, as the scripture puts it. But the Lord didn't take them that way. And in fact, he led them into the wilderness as they sought to follow him. Right away, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we see the connections here between the people of Israel in the Old Testament and us some, some thousands of years later. Uh, oftentimes, too often, in fact, it feels like uh, the Lord is taking us by a detour. We were going here, we were doing just fine, we were making our way in this direction, career change, job loss, uh, relational difficulties, sickness, health, retirement, old age, uh, all of these things, they, they feel like detours, like, Lord, what are you doing? How, how do I continue to follow you? I thought we were going by the near way, and now you are taking us through the wilderness, and we, we find ourselves struggling to follow God in the midst of the detours of our life. Uh, but why? why? Why does God do this? What I, what I find so interesting about this passage, there's actually going to be two reasons. I'm going to mention just one right now. God sees so much more than we see. God is aware, you saw that in this passage, God is aware of the fickleness of the Israelites' heart. Why is he leading them by the wilderness? Well, he knows. If they walk by Philistia and he, they see the war in the Philistines, they're, they're going to change their minds. Their, their hearts are going to quake and they're, they're going to turn back. And, and so God says, I, I can't lead them that way for their own sake. I can't lead them that way because they're not ready to go that way. Uh, I have yet to prove myself. I have more to prove about who I am, and so I'm going to lead them by the long way. Here's the question. Do we believe that? Do you believe that the path that you are on, and, and I recognize that from a human standpoint, you know, the path that you are on can be very difficult and sometimes even very ugly. I mean, we're talking about things like abuse, divorce. We're, we're talking about all sorts of things, job loss, uh, health issues. These are, these are detours that are very difficult. But part of what God is inviting us to see is that he knows. He sees in a way that we do not yet see. And he is leading us by the best way possible so that he can deliver us into the promised land intact. He can deliver us to the place where he's going that we see and that we know the Lord. And that's the, that's the challenge for us. 
It's interesting, and maybe you picked this up at the end of, of chapter uh, 13, or I'm sorry, at the very end of our reading, at the end of chapter 14, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, you know, to, in a way that was greater than before the detour, in, in a way that in a way that was now nuanced and strengthened because the Lord had led them in that direction. And sometimes these detours take a long time. Did you notice that Joseph made a reemergence in this story? I think it was verse 19 of, of chapter 13. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. 430 years later, God kept his promise, and, and what Joseph was believing at the time of his death come to fruition. So our detours, you know, if you're Joseph's bones, they, they just sat there for a while. Good thing the Egyptians were good at embalming. Uh, but uh, sometimes the detours take a little longer than we think that they're going to take. But God is not bound by time in the same way that we are. We are so immediate, especially in this culture. You know, news stories are out before the news even happens. Uh, there's just such an immediacy. But God not only knows, but he sees down the corridors of time in a way that, that we can't see down. And he says, do you trust me in the detours? Do you trust me? as you follow, sometimes even in places that don't make sense. And this really leads us to our second point, uh, and it's the second reason that God takes them on a detour. Not only does he know the heart of the Israelites, but he also has a final confrontation with Pharaoh. Now, you would think that Pharaoh would have learned his lesson by now. You know, the, the nine plagues and then, of course, the tenth plague, the destroyer coming into Egypt and taking the firstborn of every household uh, that was not marked by the blood. But Pharaoh is having some second thoughts, and it's not printed for you, but if you have your Bibles open, you see in verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done? We've, we've let Israel go from serving us. Well, if that's what you call it, serving us. Uh, we, we let go our workforce. We let go uh, our, our slaves, the ones who are keeping our economy going. And so they're like, we've got to go get them. And so they pack up. They take 600 chosen chariots and the other chariots of Egypt and all the officers over them. And they pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen, his army, and overtook them, encamped where they were, stuck. Now, if you notice in verse, chapter 14, verse 1, God led them to this place where they would eventually get stuck. Uh, 14.2 is such an interesting verse. Tell the people of Israel to turn back. And camp in front of Pi Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. Between Migdal and the sea. And that's where Pharaoh caught up with him. Sometimes the way that God leads us not only is a detour, not what we are expecting, but it also doesn't make any sense. Like, God, why are you doing this? 
Why are you taking this people into an impossible situation? So Pharaoh is going to pursue, and this is what he sees. He sees the people out here sort of trapped strategically, and he says, I'm going to go get them. So now they're stuck. Uh, Pharaoh's got his elite forces, he's got his black ops, everything going on, and he has got the people of Israel stuck between his armies and the Red Sea. And keep in mind, God hasn't told anybody what his plan is. He hasn't told Moses, he certainly hasn't told the people of Israel. All that they see is that we are stuck. God, you have made a misstep. Have you ever thought that about God with regards to your life? That was a mistake. You shouldn't have led me in that place or in that way. That was a misstep on your part, God. But God knew exactly what he was doing. And as I said, he wanted to depose Pharaoh once and for all, finally. Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. He, he should have been soft. He had, ev- he had ten opportunities to repent and embrace Yahweh. And yet, he continues on with his fist raised and saying, No, Yahweh is not God. I am God. I, the Pharaoh, am God against you. And God says, finally, I am going to depose you. To depose somebody means to tear them down out of their position, to deposition them, right? And, and he does it so thoroughly. It's interesting here. We've mentioned this with the, with the plagues. There, there are definitely creation themes in all of the plagues, uh, you know, from the sun and darkness and waters. And here we get this again. The waters separate. This, of course, happens in the creation account. God separates the waters uh, from the dry ground. And here we see God working to both create and to decreate. And what he does in his victory over Pharaoh to depose him is he so thoroughly brings upon Pharaoh's head the chaos that Pharaoh kept pursuing. Pharaoh was a chaos monster. Uh, He continued against God's plan. And, And in the ancient world, the seas and the roiling waters and all of that represented chaos. And so when Moses, you know, stretches out his hand and God divides the sea, the Israelites pass through, you see his creative and even his recreative act into forming them from a people of slavery into a people of freedom. But then when Moses stretches forth his hand, uh, again in verse 21 and 22, or 26 and 27, uh, and the seas come on, it is decreation, chaos reigns. Uh, and Pharaoh and his armies are completely destroyed. And this is what the Israelites give testimony to. You see it in 30 and 31. It's kind of an eyewitness account. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. God's message to you, God's message to the Israelites was that there is nobody, even the most powerful person in the world, the most powerful nation 
in the world with all their technological advances, with all of their medical ingenuity. There is nobody who can stand against the Lord and, and, and go against Him seeking a, a way of life apart from Him. There is nobody who will do that and not reap the chaos. Uh, that they are headed for as they stand against the Lord. His, his, his dip, deposition of Pharaoh is complete. Uh, Pharaoh is now, along with all of his forces, dead um, by the Lord's hand. But notice, too, in terms of deposing, it's not only his enemies that the Lord is working on deposing, but it is also, and, and this is what I would contend, uh, he is working at deposing the idols of our own hearts. You say, well, there's nothing really about idolatry here. But pay careful attention to the people of Israel. Now, this again is not printed for you in your bulletin, so if you have your Bibles, uh, follow along. Verse 10 of chapter 14, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it not because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Well, they're being sarcastic with the Lord. There were all kinds of graves in Egypt. The Egyptians were uh, obsessed with death and the afterlife. And, you know, we have all of these tombs and things in Egypt that we've uncovered. Of course there were graves. Uh, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we would serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we said, if you want to know what you really believe in, if you want to have an indication of what you might be serving, take a look at your fears. Because what you fear uh, is oftentimes a crack that will illuminate what you serve. So here, uh, the Israelites are moved out. Uh, they are... Uh, trusting that they are going to be a free nation, and now they look back and, and they fear greatly Pharaoh that is coming after them. They're, they're trusting in their own ability to be free. They're trusting in their own uh, ability to withstand. They're trusting in their own ability to make it through the wilderness. They're not trusting in the Lord. And so Moses says to the people, this is verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Do you see what the Lord is so graciously doing for his people here. We march out and, and, and we feel like we think that, you know, we need to achieve the victory. We need to achieve our way through the wilderness. And God knows this about his people. He knows that that is so entrenched in their hearts. And so he wants to put them in a situation 
where there is no way out except by the hand of the Lord. There is no way. In fact, they couldn't even conceive of the Red Sea parting. We already know the story. But it's like Great Lake Michigan. There you are on Ottawa Beach. And the armies of the Grand Rapidians are coming and pressing you up against the lake shore. Where do we go? We can't go into the water with a million plus people. God says, I will deliver you. And those words just come back to us again and again and again. Uh, through the centuries, he says, fear not. Do you know that that is the most often repeated command in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Fear not. For I am with you. Because God knows our hearts. He knows how easily it is for us to be fearful. I've become recently parent of adult children. I have never known fear like I've known with adult children. You would think it would be the other way around. But I realize how little control I actually have. All of the control that I thought I had was really an illusion. I don't mean to discourage young parents right now. But fear, it, it's so much tied up with who we are. Uh, and, and God says to us, fear not. I will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord is deposing our need to achieve our own salvation. The Lord is deposing our own sense of being on the throne and being in control. Charles Spurgeon, he had a way with words, just a little. He says this, I dare say you think it would be a very easy thing to stand still, but it's one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. Right, it's double negative there, but we, we only learn it through the years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing that we learn in the drill of human armies, but it's one of the most difficult to learn under the captain of our salvation. The apostle seems to hint at this difficulty when he says, stand fast, and having done all, stand still. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. I am so grateful for the diversity of our congregation when it comes to age. I am so grateful for those of you who have a few more gray hairs uh, than I do. Uh, and the testimony to standing still and waiting on the Lord. You have the, the benefit of being able to see over the years, oftentimes in our youth, we, we don't see that. But you testify that the Lord is good. And you testify that I know you don't feel it right now, but stand firm, be still. The Lord will fight for you. And this is what our God wants us to be. Depose 
that idol of self-sufficiency, depose that idol of I'm going to accomplish this and encourages us to surrender. Now again, like Spurgeon says, it doesn't come easy. And some of you say, well, this just seems so backwards. I mean, don't the Israelites have to follow? You know, don't I have to have faith? Absolutely. But don't ever think of faith as something that you do. Uh, if you do that, your faith will never be enough, and you'll constantly be wrestling with, you know, my faith isn't strong enough, or have I believed the right thing? You know, what, what Jesus is asking us, what our captain, Yahweh, is asking us is, will you surrender to me? Fear not the armies around. Put your fear only in me, your trust, your surrender. And I will fight for you. You can be assured of that. And that leads us to our third point. We have a deliverer. The Lord is a, po is a powerful potentate, if you want to write that down for 3A. He is a powerful potentate. Uh, we can trust him. I mean, we've already seen how he has deposed, brought chaos on the, the head of Pharaoh and all of his troops. It was nothing to him. The world power, it was nothing to him. He could absolutely destroy them. And he gave the Israelites the symbol, the sign of this, you know, that he was going with them. We, we see that at the end of chapter 13. Uh, verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by the day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, they did not depart before the people. Verse 19, we're told a little bit more about this, uh, chapter 14, we're told a little bit more about this pillar. Then the angel of, the, of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. What we see is that this, this powerful potentate was in their midst with his presence. You know, this was not just simply some technological gadget that, you know, was a smoke screen and then it was a light that guided them. No, this was a, a theophany. This was a, an appearance of God. Uh, oftentimes the angel of the Lord is associated with a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. We can talk more about that offline if you want to follow that through. But uh, we see here virtually the same thing, God being in the cloud, in the fire, as we saw back in Exodus chapter 3, where God visited Moses in the fire that did not consume the bush. And, and here we see God in the midst of his people to fight for them. We see God moving from their front to their back when they were pinned up against the sea and the Israel, Egyptian army was following after them. The cloud went and the darkness that they experienced, they should have known. These Egyptians, man, they were hard-headed. They should have known when that darkness came on them because of the cloud like, I've been here before. This happened when we were in the land of Egypt. Uh, but the darkness came over them, delayed them so that they couldn't come up to the Israelites. The light on the other side of the cloud gave the Israelites what they needed so that when Moses reached out his hand, 
over the seas. The east wind blew. The seas were divided. They stood in a heap, the psalmist says. Uh, and the Israelites were able to walk through. Some uh, theologians estimate that it was maybe a half a mile wide corridor uh, so that throughout the night, the light gave them passage so that they could go from the one side of the sea, crossing over, passing over to the other side of the sea. We have a powerful deliverer who is moving in order to give us what we need in order to continue to follow in sometimes the unexpected ways that he is leading us. Now, there's one last thing that I want you to see, and that is this. It's so interesting how God, Yahweh, is so powerful, and yet he works through a mediator. Did you notice that? Now, you, you see, some of these things are, are pretty interesting with, with regards to Moses and his role. Moses is the mediator, and he, of course, is prefiguring Christ, who is the ultimate mediator between God and his people. But let me just point out a couple of things to you. Verse 15 of chapter 14. The people grumble, and we're going to talk a lot more. Addison's <coughs> going to talk more about their grumbling because they grumble. The Lord proves himself. They grumble again right at the end of, of chapter 15, moving into chapter 16. Uh, the people grumble, and then the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? The Lord is rebu rebuking Moses. There's no evidence that, that Moses grumbled before the Lord, but yet God rebukes Moses for the people's sin for their disbelief, for their doubting, for their coming away from him. Then God, of course, uses Moses, verse uh, 16, lift up your staff, stretch it out, your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel. So the Lord, uh, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, verse 21. Verse 27, the sea divides, verse 27, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal coast, course, uh, killing all the Egyptians. And then we have this strange note in 31, Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord. We expect a stop there, right? But it says they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. What? Like, why are you believing in Moses? You know, I would never want anybody to believe in Vandermoss. That would be a huge mistake. But it says they believed in his servant Moses. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, uh, it says there, and it's kind of a, an interesting uh, verse in that, that whole passage, the first five verses about the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness, it says that in the wilderness, the people were baptized into Moses. Now, what does that mean? I mean, believing, baptism, these sound like things that we do to God. You know, we've baptized into the Trinity, but we're not baptized into a person what is being communicated to us here? 
Well, what's being communicated to us is that God works through a mediator. A mediator that on the one hand so identifies with the people that when God rebukes Moses, he is rebuking Moses for the people's sin. Does that sound familiar to you at all? He, he, he identifies with the mediator so that when he moves to deliver his people, he moves to deliver them through the work of a mediator. Does that sound familiar? You see, Moses and Joseph and some of these other Old Testament folks, they prefigure Christ so clearly. So here we see Moses on the one hand so fully identified with his people that they are baptized into him. That's what that means. They are, they are one with Moses. Uh, and he is so identified with them that he bears the rebuke that they deserved. A and he is at the same time so identified with God that, God that God works through him to deliver his people in an impossible situation. This is exactly who Jesus is. He is our perfect mediator, the 100% God, the 100% human, the incarnate God-made flesh who so identifies with us that he becomes sin on our behalf. That God doesn't just rebuke him, but he pours out righteously all of his wrath against sin upon Jesus as he hangs there on the cross. He is the representative. We are baptized into Jesus as he bears the penalty for our sin. And at the same time, in the most unusual move ever to happen in the history of the world, as he hangs there on that cross in all of its folly, in all of its weakness, he stretches out his hand to make a way for you and for me to walk through on dry ground that we might cross over because of his death and resurrection to the promised land. That we might cross over and that we might not experience death. What does Paul say in Colossians? He says he disarmed the rulers and the principalities and the powers, making mockery over them on the cross, we, brothers and sisters, have life. This is what the Exodus is about. This was the departure that Jesus was heading towards. It was the redemption of a people out of an impossible situation by means of a mediator. Brothers and sisters, my great prayer is that this mediator is your mediator. My great prayer is that you are baptized into him. You are so clinging to Jesus because you know that there is no other way. You are willing to surrender your own path. You are willing to surrender your own ideas of what is good and what is bad. You are willing to so identify with Christ that he becomes your guide, your friend. And when he says, fear not, stand fast, 
The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. You say, I will. I will. Help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. George Whitfield was uh, one of the most well-known preachers of the gospel associated with uh, the Great Awakening. One part of that was the, called the Farmer's Revival. And uh, 1740s, Connecticut, uh, folks would come from miles around. They would ride their horses and you know, all sorts of things. Thousands of people out in these fields, and there would be Whitfield preaching. Uh, no amplification, just his little old self and a bunch of people, horses, cows, the smells that go with it, everything. One farmer was Nathan Cole, and he uh, was not an incredibly literate man, but he was able to write down some reflections uh, about hearing Whitfield preach on one day. And as Whitfield talked about a mediator, as Whitfield talked about one uh, who graciously, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, went to a cross and died in order to lead his people into freedom. This is what Nathan Cole said. He said, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound by God's blessing. My old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. May God so beautifully wound your heart today that the only salve would be to fall at the feet of your Savior and weep those sweet tears. He says, I have nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for those wounds that lead us to the Savior. We thank you for the beauty that is contained in your gospel, this deliverance, an impossible situation, but yet a way through to stay on that shore means death, but to cross over means life forevermore. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would meet us here today and that you would remind us, whatever detour we might be on, whatever idol is, is raging in our heart and life, you would pull it down and remind us to fear not, to stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Fight for us, Lord, when we cannot fight for ourselves. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.